There's no bad art if there's a good intent behind it. If the intent is good, there, there is no bad art. Now, maybe there's amateur art, maybe there's beginner art and all of this, but if the intent is goodness, right, then there is no bad art. Art is a space that doesn't already have prepackaged bad baggage for them. What is the true purpose of art in our lives? How can we use art and symbol to better understand the world we live in and the experiences of those around us? In this episode, Lawan Glasscock, Executive Director of Christians in the Visual Arts, shares her experience of anthropology, archaeology, and art as a means to bring people together despite divergent backgrounds and differing opinions. Our incredible God can use anything. He can use the little drummer boy as much as he can use Messiah. I think that we have to be careful when we begin to become gatekeepers of what art is and what art isn't. How do we help people see, right? Not see elitism, not see technique, but how do we just help them see? In a world polarized and divided, God can use our talents to bridge many gaps between people and transform the small work of our hands into the powerful vehicle for His saving message. This is Living the Call. Lawan Glasscock, welcome to the show. Thanks, it's great to be here. It's so great to see you. You know, I'm always happy when somebody can define for me what art is. So oh. I'm sure you've never gotten that question. Like, Luan, <laughs> what is art? You know, it's this, uh, it's one of those very high idealed questions that has very unsatisfactory answers in my experience. Yeah, or you usually get that collector who thinks he's really collecting great art and you really, um, breaking the news to him yeah. has to be really, uh, it's, it's a sensitive road to walk sometimes. <laughs> Done gingerly. I actually, I don't, I'll try this one out on you. It's not about art, but it's close. It's about poetry. And this is an original. I thought about this one myself in kind of a moment of inspiration. And I was reading some poetry, which I don't always do. It's not like I'm sitting around reading sonnets or anything, but I was reading some poetry and I thought, well, poetry is kind of saying a lot of things, is using less words um, to say what more words can't. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and, and is there something similar there when you think of the visual arts? Yeah. I mean, for me personally, the visual arts is my primary language, right? And it's not just the visual arts. I, I, I would call it visual culture or visual language. I did not mm. speak a, a word until I was um, at the end of my first grade. And um, really? Yeah. So my parents. Um, didn't quite know what to do with me and, you know, my entire, you know, mm. couldn't get into kindergarten. And I just, I was just a person who didn't speak until I was um, almost my, my seventh birthday. So, and through, you know, my first six years, I, um, I absorbed, I watched, I looked. Um, my mother will tell you I pointed and grunted a lot, um, mm. but, or I would draw pictures or, and, but for me, um, the spoken or the written word, even though I love etymology now, um, is, is very difficult for me to understand my, just the way my mind works, where visual is one of those things that I just, I, I, the way God has wired me, I, I instantly grab. Words to me are just random, and I don't make, it doesn't make any sense. The alphabet makes no sense to me. Sure. Do, do you see, um, 
you know, you're obviously skilled in antiquities and archaeology and a variety of different things. So I think you might be uniquely suited to have this kind of conversation with. But one thought that I had on what you just said is the idea of, you know, early writing systems or the earliest writing systems, you know, being even for the uninitiated like me, you know, whatever, cuneiform or these like hieroglyphs and like almost images, right? Where people look at letters and and alphabets as almost like a evolution of that concept. In other words, like a bettering and improvement of that. Is it really, or are they different things? Uh, no, absolutely. It's um, our written language now. So our U.S. alphabet, right? I'm, I'm the Italian, you know, um, is is definitely. I don't know if it's an evolution. It's a um, it's a um, a change, right? Evolution, you, you sense it's, it's getting better. Um, but for example, like Chinese hieroglyphs, cuneiforms, they all come from originating the visual language. And even mm. if we think of the word logos, right? Um, many of us think logos and we think of the written or the spoken word, but actually logos is more of a mind of concept. Yes. So conceptual art, visual art is also logos, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in the Bible, it's, you know, Christ logos, right, was there at the beginning. And and I think we do ourselves an injustice when we think of it only as the written or the spoken word. There, there, the visual um, for some of us is, is really the language that we live and breathe. I, I imagine, you know, especially given your background, um, the idea of kind of looking out at the world, looking out at creation and seeing that sort of imprint of that language in a variety of different things, right? And perhaps some of this is the reason that drew you to the things that you devoted, have devoted your life life to. But, um, you know, one of the little uh, kind of asides that I have about the beatific vision, I go, well, I wonder what heaven's like. And of course, we know from scripture, we'll never really know, right? St. Paul says you, you can't even imagine it. But one of the things I kind of think about is that all of these uh, things that God has been telling us, the story he's been sharing, the way he's been writing through creation, through history, through people, through, you know, time and space will become more clear to us, right? Because I kind of view sometimes like we're kind of walking in this, you know, travelogue that's it's all around us, but we we don't see it. And depending on our relationship with God, the amount of time we spend with him, our openness to receive that story, the more we see it. But sometimes in life, we don't, right? We kind of go right by it. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I just... I, I think you are correct. And it's it's one of the, um, you know, s- spending my life both in the U.S. and also Italy, it's, it's one of the things that I'm a little bit sad about here in the United States. We, we teach our children to listen, right? We teach our children to communicate verbally. One of the things I think we could do better at is to teach our children to see um, with discernment, right? Mm. And to also uh, to also message and communicate visually with discernment, to really understand not what we're messaging to our, our neighbors and words, but how are we messaging visually, right? How are we, and this is something that I think in the 20th century, 19th century, beginning 20th, and definitely in the 21st century, um, we haven't learned that discernment. We haven't learned the discernment to see and to be, and how are we seen, right? We're so, um, 
we're, we're, we're so focused on our written, our verbal statement, we don't mm-hmm. really get that we're also making a visual statement that is just as strong and in some instances even stronger. You know, politicians are great at this, right? I mean, they, they get it, right? They understand that um, we have our walls up when it comes to written and verbal. But if you really want to get your propaganda, whether it be good or bad, right? Propaganda is not always a bad thing. It can be a good thing as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the church does it, right? Um, it's funny. In, in Spanish, propaganda just means commercial. To propagate. So it doesn't have necessary. You're right, to propagate. It doesn't necessarily have a, a weight to it morally, but it, here in an English context, it definitely does. Exactly. And so, you know, if, if politicians get that, Right? They do. They know the world of optics. Exactly. That's the terminology. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. understand that the U.S. culture um, is extremely naive in that area. Now, what is that? Is that distraction? Is that a cultural byproduct of just no. our kind of transactional nature? What What is that about? I don't think so. Now, here's where my anthropology comes in. Um, oh, good. It comes from, because there are certain subgroups within the United States who are less so naive. Hmm. But um, when we begin to think about, now keep in mind, um, I know people will say, oh, well, it's a, a Protestant, um, you know, the, the Protestant found the United States. Well, I'm going to push back on that and say, you know, the United States is more than just the Northeast Coast. It's, it's Texas, right? Which was Mexico. Yes. And very Catholic. It's, it's California, right? that is Latino and very Catholic, right? So there is as much as the founding of the United States, when we look at the United States as a whole, has just as much Catholic influence. And it comes from a Latino influence. And the Latino Catholic culture sees better mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. The, 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 that Puritan Northeast, right? It's just something that's been inbred in them. The, I think that some of that is I, I would I would affirm that um, and I'm only thinking about it now for the first time but this but maybe there's more of there's more of an iconography that is part of that culture more of uh, you know more images more of a uh, and even a focus it can become a bad thing a focus on what appearances are in other words absolutely. this looks bad where maybe the more puritanical, you know, Protestant European kind of historical perspective might be, well, what is the thing less about what does it appear like it is, right? So I definitely can see that reflected in different Latino culture. Yeah. And I think through just the years, right, um, of, of you know, the last 200 years in the United States, it's, we've, we've not emphasized the visual, right? Mm. Uh, my hope, my hope, and I know that people are, are, you know, can be negative against social media and all of this. And yes, it does have its, its evils quite a bit, but it also has the good, right? Because what I am seeing with social media is that if we can teach, if we can teach people to see, right? Social media is very much a visual media. Instagram, right? Very much a visual media. And, and it's a tool that we can use, right? We have to figure out a way to minimize the evil and turn it for us, right? Genesis 50, 20, what, what, what you meant for evil, God means for good. And this is very much how I approach Instagram is, mm. is um, it's a visual tool. And it's, and it's a tool that we can use to propagate 
truth, beauty, goodness, right? Capital Amen. T, capital B, sure. capital G, right? And um, we just have to do that. We have to be committed to doing that. I've spoken about this in the past, about it being in a very real sense a canvas, you know, because it kind of is. And I mean, in another way, it is a bit of a mission field as well. Now, you know, on any canvas and in any field, you can do a lot of things. Yeah. So uh, we see we see a wide variety of it, but we do have a little bit of a baby with the bathwater in some sectors. There's a bit of a baby with the bathwater thing about let's just get, you know, this is horrible. Let's get rid of it. But there's an but isn't opportunity. That what we did in the 1600s when we got rid of all the art in the church, right? And, haven't we right. learned our lesson? And before that, even before, right, the iconoclastic movement and all that stuff, I mean, you know, the shattering of all these images, right, because we just wanted to have the pure kind of connection. But yeah, there's definitely something significant about that. And I think that's where we approach the art, right? Not all art is bad. Not all art is evil. Um, it's, you know, in bad, what, what is bad art? I'm going to argue there's no bad art if there's a good intent behind it right? If the intent is good. There, there is no bad art. Now, maybe there's amateur art, maybe there's um, um, beginner art and all of this, but, but if the intent is goodness, right, um, then there is no bad art. It's, it's kind of like, it's like a gift in a way, right? If you've got a little, a little kid who comes up to you, maybe uh, you know, daughter, niece, grandchild, whatever it may be, and says, you know, I, I, I got you this thing and it's a stick, Right. And you're like, oh, well, that's so sweet. And I love you. It's a it's a gift. Right. The intent is to bring you joy, to show you some moment of caring. Right. So it's not about the gift. Now, of course, if that particular child in that example, you know, did a, uh, you know, pointillism, uh, you know, art or something and brought it to you, you'd be like, wow, not only is it a gift, but it's this amazing talent. So yeah. I think that that makes sense that the intention has a lot to do with it. But we don't think about we don't think much about intention when we look at uh you know, at these images, at least that's what I find oftentimes. And of course, for me, I, 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 I'm unique in the art world, um, especially the fine art world, because I arrived the fine arts. I arrived the arts, the visual arts through that anthropological, historical, theological path. I yeah. did, I did not arrive the arts through the fine arts path. Um, so there are many conversations that my friends who teach in the fine arts programs, we don't see eye to eye as the purpose of art, right? For me, art is truly an artifact. Mm. What is it saying about culture? Um, and as an archaeologist, if you have a piece, right, that's only saying something about one individual, right, um, their perspective, their, you know, I, I I tend to step back and I say, okay, so what good is this one opinion saying about about society, about our 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 being, right? It's is it is this an egocentric piece or is this a a theocentric piece, right? Or an mm. anthrocentric piece or is it a sociocentric piece? And and those are the questions when I approach art. Um, Yes, I'm interested in the the technique, the skill, um, because I, I'm always curious as to um, the life of the artist, right? A discipline, the discipline that goes behind it. Yes, those things are are quite interesting to me, um, but I want deeper, right? And and I am, <laughs> and here's my here's my um, my rant for the day, I guess. Um, is that um, I'm I'm a 
I'm not a fan of critics, right? Mm. Um, growing up, my father was an attorney. And I would always hear, oh, there's no attorneys in heaven because, right? Well, I would disagree, <laughs> right. right? Because Christ, Christ even says the Holy Spirit comes as our advocate, right? That's and right. avocato That's right. is, That's right. in Italian, is attorney, right? And I think it's very similar in, in, in French. And so our advocate. And so I do believe there and will Spanish be... in Spanish too, abogado. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So I do believe, mm-hmm. you know, so the Holy Spirit is our advocate, right? So I always, growing up, always thought, oh, Holy Spirit's my own attorney, right? Um, so I do believe there will be attorneys in heaven. What I hope not to see, or at least hopefully they'll bring another hat, is an art critic. <laughs> because it's almost like watching a, a comedy show sometimes, mm. right? And the reason I say that is there, there is a friend of mine who is extremely well-known, um, extremely accomplished, is always getting critics' attention and all of this. And one day I was at a show with him and, and he was listening to the critic. And I remember speaking about his work that he created, and he leaned over to me and he said, no, that's not it. That's not what I intended. Nah, that color's there because I accidentally put the paintbrush there, you know. And he's (laughs) like, and the whole entire critique of his work, right, this really high-level intellectual thing, he leans over and says, I have no idea what he's looking at, but that's not my art, <laughs> you know. And I always, and I just think it's it's um, it's funny, and sure, it's, of course. it's also that experience for me that convinces me that art, right, visual art, and yes, there is a place for that elite fine art. There is a place for that, but again, it comes with its evils. It definitely comes with an evil, evil, and I have seen that elite fine art even within archaeology and cultures. It, it can exclude more Rather than it than can include. include. Yeah, I, th- I think the perspective that you have um, or what you bring with you as an anthropologist, archaeologist, which, by the way, when I was, uh, I was an anthropology major for about four and a half minutes um, <laughs> because I thought that anthropology was archaeology and made that mistake of like, well, well no, you have to Jones, do the anthropology right? first and of then the archaeology. Right. But this idea of fundamentally kind of rooting yourself, R-O-O-T, in the idea of, um, you know, creation, man and woman, their cultures, the things they made, the artifacts they left behind, who they were, how they operated, that when you look at a piece of art and you start from that vantage point, right? Not in reverse where it might be, oh, this evokes a sense of X or whatever it may be, but like, you know, what's all behind it? I got to imagine that that's a dimension that, you know, that that is, you know, helpful, but oftentimes can run you afoul of maybe some of these critics and other people who are approaching it from perhaps, you know, much more, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, much more matter of fact, transactional, perhaps just looking at it and saying, okay, brushstroke here, this, that, the other. Um, but there's not much behind it, right? There's not much uh, well, driving there, it. There is something behind it. It's it's just simply not what interests me. And what and what does interest you about that? I mean, what what drew you to anthropology, archaeology to begin with? What drew me to anthropology? Well, <laughs> so I actually I told, my father was an attorney, and I had believed my entire life um, I would follow in his footprints. Um, 
and I would become an attorney. So I hmm. set off to do that. And um, so I went to St. Mary's University in San Antonio and absolutely loved it. Great law school. It's where my father went. And then um, and then I transferred, um, finished, you know, to the St. Mary's undergrad and then started at Georgetown University fully 100% gung-ho, right? And this was in, this will date me, um, this was in the late 80s when the Oliver North, um, Iran-Contra, all of that was going on. Sure. And as a good Catholic school, you know, St. Mary's was Marianist, Georgetown is Jesuit. Um, you have to do so many community hours, right? Um, and I'm sad to see that those are diminishing in requirements. I'd love for it to come back. But you had to do so many um, service hours. And I um, I was given um, my service hours to serve at the um, Conservative Campaign Fund, which is the which was the fund that was backing Oliver North and all of that. And as a young twenty something year old idealist, right, um, boy, the world hit me smack in the face, and I <laughs> just I just became dismayed with humanity. Um, not because of Oliver North and all of that, but just because of everything that was going around it. And my idealist self, um, basically, be, you know, even my epitaph on my tomb, on my gravestone says the world broke her heart, but God's grace healed it. Um, and that is, you know, in my young 20s, I had uh, uh, not necessarily a faith breakdown, but uh, a, uh, a disheartening of humanity, right? I, I just couldn't get over the the um, the abundance mm -hmm. of of um, egocentric driven you know all these all these things right and I see it in the art world too today I, I'm just a little bit more mature now so I don't run off and hide like I did in my twenties so I went to the professor and asked can I please change I don't want to be at this um, pack group so he changed me and that was the year that the Smithsonian institutes were um, creating their new Native American museum. Hmm. So I got changed over to the Native American museum and befriended an, the anthropologist who was um, heading that up. And he was part of the University of Texas system. And after about three months, he just looked at me and he said, God didn't mean for you to be an attorney. He meant for you to be an anthropologist. <laughs> and I don't know, I just found my, my, um, Anthropology had never been introduced to me before, ever. I went home to Texas, and I sat down with my father and said, and he asked me how my grades were coming, and I said, well, I've decided to change my major. And was that would that have been a big deal? I mean, oh, back huge, then, was that, huge. yeah, it was because okay, so 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 it was important for both of you that you be a lawyer. Oh, absolutely, just, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now, I think that in the 80s, if the antiquities laws were what they are today, right, um, but they were just beginning, I think that maybe I would have continued to pursue that law, right, in, mm -hmm. in antiquities and in international um, antiquities laws, um, but it wasn't there yet, right? So um, I went home, I told him, and he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, I thought I'd be an anthropologist, and he put his paper down and his coffee down and looked straight at me and said, and just what kind of job are you going to do with that? Hmm. And I thought, well, I will show you. <laughs> that was my rebellion. I will show you. Um, so I sought out. I went back to the professor and he said, well, I'll, 
I'll cover your first, cause I was on fellowship. I was, my, my tuition was paid. Right. Right. Uh, and I would lose it. And there were a lot of financial things keeping me on that path of that course. I was on. And he says, come down, come down to Texas, change to anthropology and I'll cover your first semester. Mm-hmm. And I did. And that was the end of it. I never looked back, continued on, um, continue on, on into archaeology with the um, focus on um, art and architecture history through that archaeological lens. Um, and then specifically focused on the first um, first five centuries of early church and the visual language of the early church and how the visual helped um, propagate, right? Sure. Um, the foundations of the early was church. The- was there a moment, you've already talked about art as artifact, was there a moment when the kind of, uh, you know, focus on, you know, culture, early man, and the things that he made and did and lived, and this idea of communication, influence, um, inspiration, all the things that are maybe some of the the, the softer side of, of uh, you know, of the data of man, right? This idea of art for its own sake. Was there a moment of like convergence of those where you said, okay, I can now, yes, I've got this background, but like art is my thing that I'm going to focus on. Did that happen around that time? Was there a moment that you can recall that drove that? No, at that time, I thought I was going academia. I thought I was gung-ho research academia. Um my interest, especially, you know, because it was early church, was, you know, I, I definitely believe in this transcendence, right? And and um, our triune God can absolutely transcend, and, and art is a fabulous tool for that. And it doesn't have to be good art, for right, for the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit to transcend. Um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit isn't limited by our aesthetics. Um, so that fascinated me right and and it fascinated me how our our built surroundings could could augment our worship mm. of this incredible triune god that we had right and and looking at that early church right so before the church Lurking at early ne- um, Neolithic. I want. I remember going to my advisor at one point when trying to choose my graduate focus, and I said I want to do Neolithic, and he said, you know, unless you're a priest, or unless you come from a lot of money, Neolithic is not going to pay your bills. Choose something that's marketable, right? Right. So from Neolithic, I then said, okay, well, what about Etruscan? And he said. Three quarters of the world doesn't world doesn't even know what Etruscan is. I'd say I think that's generous. Three quarters, I'd say more like ninety <laughs> percent. Of course, I think everyone knows what Etruscan is because that's that's my passion. Um, and then, so we finally came to what about the Roman Empire, right? Lots of that's, work there. I can market that. I can get a For job sure. with that, right? I can that's I can teach <laughs> whole universe of potential. Exactly, exactly. I just can't teach. I just can't do anything back in the U.S. And my mother would always say, why don't you, you know, because I was in Europe and my mother would say, why don't you come back to Texas and get a job? And I'm like, but mom, as soon as they find an Roman dig in Texas, I'll be there. You'll be there in a heartbeat. It hasn't happened what, so, yet. So, so, you, so you were living in Italy uh, in your college years as well? That's, that's where I was you my first graduate, got there? Yeah, all my graduate years. Okay. So I was there for 28 years. Always in Tuscany? Um, no, part in Rome. 
and then did a lot of my graduate field work in the Middle East, Roman sites, but in the Middle East, a lot in Jordan mm. and Syria. And in fact, um, you know, the last decade watching all of um, Palmyra in Syria, it's it just broken my heart because I remember, I mean, I raised my son in the Middle East, right? I raised wow. my son going to Jordan and going to Syria and going to the Holy Lands. Um, of course, now it's interesting because he's a captain in the Marines doing intelligence in that area. But mm. um, it's um, it's sad to see that, right? It's sad to... And um, the people, oh my gosh, just the incredible culture there and the visual. It, it does break my heart that people aren't able to experience that. Well, it's so ancient. I think that idea of being able to walk in a place that is millennia old. I was in the Middle East. I've only been once. Um, but I remember, um, uh, you know, being obviously in some of the holy sites and specifically going to Jericho. And I remember at one point, you know, one of the people there pointing out that a, a particular wall or monument, I forget exactly what it was, was something on the order of 7,000 years old. Yeah. Now, of course, geologically, right, uh, you know, on that kind of time scale, and you're thinking millions and billions of years. Well, sure, not much. But from the standpoint of something made by a pair of human hands that I can still touch today and go, oh, my gosh, I, I don't know how, what you do, but like I instantly put myself because I'm going to ask you this. But I, what I do is I instantly put myself in like I flash back. I'm time machine guy. So yeah. like I go, oh, my gosh, like I'm touching the thing. I can imagine in the first century and then 500 year BC, somebody else doing it, and some little kid with his ball. And like I instantly go there. But but that experience, what that does to deepen your understanding and your your idea of this community, this world, this this. This, this thing that we have, this solidarity with our, with our brothers and sisters becomes very clear at that moment. And if we don't have that, we don't, and we don't have that here for the most part, right? You can't well, get that we same don't experience. Know. We don't quite know what we have yet. Okay, maybe better time, said. Yeah. time is going to test that, right? We can't really say we're in the thick of it. We can't really say what we have quite yet. Mm, interesting. Yeah, but for me, that's that's the, the 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 effect that ancient things, when I come in contact with them, have is it naturally kind of brings up this sense of of solidarity and and community and and brotherhood because it's assumed that we've been here for a while and we've been living together and look at the great things we made. Yeah, well, I will say um, when I was a teenager, walking through. The, um, I was with friends and walking through the Roman Forum. This was long before it was fenced off and you had to pay to get in. It, it was just like a city park you could walk through. And I remember walking through the Roman Forum and sitting down on this incredible cornice stone that had fallen, right, that was just kind of sitting out there and just sitting there. And my friends turned and looked at me and said, come on, we got to go. You know, what are you doing? And I said, oh, can't you come on, join me. You can breathe history. Yes. And of course, yeah. they just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Now, keep in mind, one is a medical doctor now and one's an attorney, but they just looked at me and said, come on, we got to go. You know, and it's like, but you can breathe in history, right? Mm -hmm, and then my husband, can. my husband is so funny because he will tell you he knows every Rome, every Etruscan wall in Italy because, and I said, how do you know? You've never, he says, all he does is walks behind me as we go through the little small streets and things of different towns and all of that. And he says, he always knows what's Etruscan because I'll reach over and touch it and I'll just mm. keep walking. And I did not even realize I did this. 
Wow, until he began I'm... pointing it out that, you know, your eye, and again, that's that discerning eye. Your eye just begins sure. to see, you know, you see what's Etruscan, you see what's Umbrian, right? You see what's Roman, you see what's medieval. And it's just this natural, and people say, well, how do you see it? And I said, just, it's, it's the same way you learn to read, right? You, you just, you learn it over and over and you, and, and your mind begins to pick it up and you instantly begin to tell what, you know, what is Opus Reticulatum, right? Of Roman second century. And you just, and you begin to, you just kind of reach over, touch it. And um, so my husband says, yes, that um, my love for Etruscan walls, he can always tell which stone is the Etruscan remaining piece because I just kind of, as I'm walking, just touch sure. it. Well, and to me, that's history. That's of touching course. history. Well, you're recognizing the images, and it sounds like he's recognizing the images in you, right? You're kind of being a reflection of that. Yeah. Now, you've, t- you've talked about two things, and I want to um, tie a little bow around this. One of them is, you know, you, what you just shared about your husband and him experiencing this kind of Etruscan artifacts through your experiencing of them, and then your lawyer and doctor friend um, kind of not getting it. Now, you've been at the center, in fact, you know, kind of trying to connect a lot of these different bubbles and parts of the ecosystem and perspectives for for a while. One of the things that I read about you was the idea of trying to create bridges, right, between, uh, you know, people who are maybe more in the scholarly sphere, artists, people who are not in either, but maybe are people that are well, well-heeled, well-resourced, who, who, who can support that kind of work. So trying to bridge a little bit of that divide— and those two examples you gave are sort of evidence of that. It, it seems like that's something that is pretty needed, right? And yet, talk about that a little bit. And I think even more so um, now than what it was in the you know 16th, 17th, 18th century, um, or even you know going back to early church history, um, the early Christians understood the value of visual, right? Um, they under if you go to the catacombs, right? You you see it; it's there. It's it's so vivid there. If you look at early church architecture, right? Which we've you know if we go back to fourth fifth century church architecture, it's quite different. Mm. Um, there there because they, they they understood right. It, the visual was so important. Uh, n- now though we have um, I, I, the bridge. It, it's it's a sad point, um, and sometimes I feel a bit overwhelmed with it, is because I have so many friends and people I care for who are in different um, areas, right? Um, and um, the business sector, the entrepreneurial sector, right? The oil and gas, right? I come from Texas, so <laughs> half of everyone around me is oil and gas. Um, the um, the fine art sector, right? That elite sector, the museum world, the, um, the restorers, even, even those artists that are in the studio today, every day, making art, right? Mm. Um, I believe God has created us to be communal. And, um, and if an individual knew how to make the entire art ecosystem work, why would we need to be communal? Mm. And so I think those bridges help, right? One, we have a need for each other. Sure. And and yes, there are studio artists who have this 
bad taste for patrons, right? It, it's I, I hear it on a daily basis. Oh, I don't want some oil and gas guy coming in and giving me this money to pay. You know, I don't want his influence, right? And 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 there's it's this um, um, it's a sadness that we can't have these conversations in a positive tone that, I mean, yes, we speak different languages, the entrepreneur, right? He wants a business plan and he wants to know, you know, and asking a studio artist to create a business plan. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, we even did with the organization I'm at right now, which is um, SIVA, Christians in the Visual, we did nuts and bolts, basically trying to teach basic business 101, right? Um, basic intellectual property protection. Um, all of those things and building those bridges because one, we need others to succeed. And if we're in this all together, we need the entrepreneur. We need the creative person in the studio. We need business, right? Um, I think the way to think about it as you've done is as an ecosystem, because yes. it is true. And then of course, from a theological perspective, we have, you know, St. Paul's words all over the place saying, look, some people are the hand and some the toe and some the ear and, you know, right. we are the body of Christ. So each one fulfills this kind of greater story in, in the narrative that God is weaving. And, and sometimes we have misapprehensions about that, right? Because we, we think, well, I'm involved in this, you know, very beautiful art. So there's no way this, you know, oil magnate can be part of that story, but we don't know. Yeah, we, we don't, don't know. know. That. We don't know. And I think that's where we have to keep an openness, right? And we have to be very, very careful um, and I, I think it's because of fear that sometimes we, we create a pseudo-elitism within ourselves, right? Mm. I, I'm the artist, or I'm the museum curator, or I'm, I'm the gatekeeper, right? Yeah. And I think that when we step in to self-appointing us as the gatekeeper, that's our first step down that slope. That leads, Absolutely. that leads to division and basically a, a failure to succeed because we need everyone, right? And art needs to be, and this is one of the things I'm, you know, I, I was going academia. The reason I left academia was because I realized, um, and there is a purpose for academia, right? But for me personally, I wanted to be on that pedestrian level. I wanted to be in the pew, not the seminary. Mm. I wanted to hear what the average Joe and Jane was experiencing on the street, right? And I wanted it, <laughs> I, I, right? Everything's about me. Um, I wanted to understand how does the visual culture, how does art augment their life, right? Or how does art, how does the visceral culture diminish and um, create harm to their life? Mm. Right? Because it does. Mm -hmm. Don't. Sure. I mean, we'd be naive to think it doesn't. Um, and how do you, again, goes back to our conversation at the beginning, how do we help people see, right? Not see elitism. Not see technique, but how do we just help them see, right? Eyes to and, and, see. And people, and people, I imagine, from a variety of different um, 
you know, walks of life and, you know, faith backgrounds. There's something very, frankly, ecumenical about the vision that you're describing. And, you know, I wonder, and I'm sure you've got a number perhaps of examples of this, but, um, you know, we have a lot of politicization certainly in the country right now, division, et cetera. Um, but, but from a Christian context, you know, we've had differences and a lot of infighting and misunderstanding between even, you know, faith traditions and, and all of that. So, and a lot of it is rooted in this common everyday Joe and Jane experience, right? Um, how does art and maybe specifically Siva's role play in that dynamic? I think, you know, what drew me to Siva years ago, decades ago, was that um, in the visual culture, in the visual art organizations, right, art historians, studios, all of those in those conversations, what I was finding was I could find organizations that were purely academic, right, missed the faith element, or I could find organizations that were arts and faith that were Catholic, right? There's some fabulous ones out there. Catholic Creatives is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Fabulous ones. Um, and I'm a part of them, right? Um, there are others that are specifically evangelical, Protestant, right? Um, but what I was drawn to Siva was the, the ecumenical, right? It, it, it didn't... it. It's a language. Now, I will say, and I'm just going to be honest here, two decades ago, a Catholic in Siva was probably not as embraced as they are now. Um, let, al- let alone running it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that you're, that came, you're, the, you're I am, the first Catholic. Okay, I am right, the first yeah. Catholic ED, yeah. Um, and and I think that came to a shock. Well, I know it came to a shock because I got some nasty letters <laughs> saying, mm, wait a minute, I bad. thought the ED had to be Christian. <laughs> well, why are we letting a Catholic in there? Um <laughs> Which is, of course, you know, you just kind of, it's the same approach you take to the critics. You just kind of laugh and, yeah. Well, and I'm you sure know. you as a, as a, you know, archaeologist, you're sitting there going, okay, you have about six and a half hours to spend with me to explain the issue of that question. <laughs> it's like, half, maybe like six and a half years. Right. Um, six and a half years for me to talk to you about what early Christianity looked exactly. like. Exactly. Yes, it's ahead. like, oh, wait a minute. You just, you just threw out 1500 years. <laughs> um, so... I I think for me, see, it's it's that ecumenical voice, right? That conversation that you can have in civil dialogue, right? I, I I'm I'm not a I have very little patience. In fact, I read something from um, Saint John of the Cross this morning in the meditation about patience. I don't know if you get it if you get them too. Oh Every, yeah, yeah, about the impatient, right? <laughs> and I thought, oh That's my one. gosh, I just got called out this morning by St. John of the Cross. Um, That's one of the many the many virtues <laughs> I'm still developing, Luan, is uh, patience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think these conversations that come from all different um, Christian traditions is incredibly rich. Mm. Right. And and not just the different traditions, but the different disciplines within the visual arts. Like I said, um, you know, the art historian coming through the fine art lens has a very different take than the art historian coming through the archaeological lens. 
very different, which is completely different than the art historian coming through the philosophical theological lens, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sometimes we forget that every art historian comes from the same school of thought. We don't, right? And the same thing is with Christians. We just assume every Christian has the same dogma and that the same, you know, they had the same catechism that I did. Well, they don't. Um, It doesn't mean they're right or wrong or anything like that. It's just, we're different. And and it's that diversity that is so exciting for me with Siva. And as far as I know, Siva is the only one that is intentionally diverse with traditions and um, and disciplines, right? How is that, how is that Lawan played? How is your Catholicism as part of that ecumenism, right? Because we are one of, you know, even though I joke sometimes we're pre-denominational, not denominational, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but nevertheless, we're part of that ecumenical conversation. But how has your Catholic contribution specifically helped, uh, you know, or what's an example of how that's provided maybe more fullness to what this ecumenical dialogue is? If you think about it from a SIVA concept. Within SIVA? From, well. Yeah, within SIVA. Yeah. Well, I am just thrilled. I'm sure not everyone's thrilled. But like our conference is coming up in November. We have Bishop Vasquez, who's the Bishop of Austin mm. Diocese, who is opening our conference with a blessing of the artists, right? Is taking the letter of Benedict XVI and is incorporating that into the blessing of the artist. And this is the first time anything like that has happened at That's SIVA, beautiful. right? Um, we're, we're, it just, um, I think for, for people- me, I have to be careful though, because yeah. I have to restrain my Catholic enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. You know? yeah, yeah. You know, like May, we do our, our, our social media campaigns, right? And I was so tempted in May to just flood social media with Marian images. <laughs> And, and I'd be thought, like, oh, oh, here goes the Catholic. I know. Sure. Yeah. And trust yeah. me, every time, every time I do put anything that kind of leads into the Mary or the Marian or the, you know, saint, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, um, you know, some remote obscure saint, you're right. I guarantee, I mean, I just expect it now. Emails in my inbox. But to me, those emails open up a discussion. Of course. And I do. love it. Yeah. And I invite them in to say, well, tell me your perspective. Because in our in our chair, our, our board chair um, comes from a, a Baptist evangelical background. And he and I have become the best of friends. And there are times that I have to reach out to him and say, it, it, translate this for me. I don't understand what this is saying. And he always comes back. He goes, Oh, Lawan, this is evangelical language 101. Right, evangelical this is Protestant ease. Event. Yeah. yeah, it's like okay, because I, I it totally missed me. And... But the, but but the same holds true in reverse, right? It I does. can imagine when the bishop comes to do that blessing, perhaps, and and people who are visually inclined, no less, yeah. perhaps a few people who have never seen a mitre before, never seen a crozier, never seen a, you know, a man do a, a blessing of this kind, or been ever sprinkled with holy water. All of these things, you know, as simple and as for granted yeah. as we might take them, can have a tremendous impact and be a bridge to a conversation. Absolutely, and I think that. We have to be very careful in presuming that everyone's going to understand that visual language. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, if we don't understand the visual, um, our human nature is to push back against it, right? Unless oh, you're for sure. incredibly that, that faintly happen. curious, right? No, but that happens for back. sure. Yeah. And even in, even in that case specifically, right? I mean, you, I, I think that oftentimes the... The less charitable um, 
assumption or interpretation is made, right? Uh, a miter was like this silly, outdated hat that, you know, is trying to make somebody a king. Uh, a, you know, gold chalice is spending a lot of money on something you could sell to give to the poor. So the, the, the thing that we see, or maybe some of us see, is not automatically no. what other people see. I guess what I'm referring to is that perhaps, you know, obviously God's grace is a part of this, but those things can be avenues to have a conversation. And maybe even sometimes because of the misapprehension, yeah. it can be part of that um, that conversation. Yeah, and, one of, and, and that's very much what we've noticed. Um, Joe Corey, the board chair, and I have discussed because of just our differences and our conversations with each other that— um, you know, our faith is equally the strong, right? I, I would say he's no less a Christian than I am. I mean, just because he's not Catholic, he's absolutely no less a Christian than I am. And we have these wonderful conversations. And so a um, little more than a year ago, we began a program in SIVA called Lit Art. And not lit, mm. like come come to church drunk, but, you know, um, <laughs> liturgical art, right? So Lit Art is what we call it. And we gathered together... Uh, a group of about 25 within our SIVA family, intentionally chosen that represented different faith traditions, and even within the faith traditions, different spectrums. So even now, you know as well as I do, within Catholicism, right? We have conservative, we have liberal, we have progressive, we have traditional, right? So even within the faith traditions, we intentionally chose. And we brought together for three days, 25 of mm. those um, pastors and liturgical artists to have a conversation. I would have loved to have been in that room. Oh, my God. Well, we're doing it again in, the, in um, one year, in fall. Well, count yeah. me in. I, oh I actually gosh. think, just a small little aside, not to take you off your off your story, but you know, we're obviously doing a podcast right now. But one <laughs> of the podcasts that I think would be fascinating— is something along the lines of, um, you know, a Catholic version of a very popular show actually based in Austin now, uh, the Joe Rogan show. Joe Rogan has gotten notoriety for a lot of, you know, reasons, some good, some not good. But what is incontrovertible about him is that he brings these very, very different voices onto the same forum. So you'll have somebody who's very libertarian, followed by somebody who's a radical, followed by somebody who's conservative, followed by somebody who's liberal, and he just listens to them and has conversations with yeah. them. In and of itself, that fact is what drives a lot of his controversy is the fact, oh, you had so-and-so on your show, and then you had so-and-so on your show. Now, the idea, the thought in describing this 25-person room brought this to me of a conversation that we could have, think of it from just a Catholic context, between that very traditionally minded, very liturgically oriented person and somebody who's very progressive, you know, maybe within the, the tent of Catholicism. But yeah. those two, generally speaking, do not meet in media. They do not no. meet. So no, I love the idea yeah. of this. It is. It's fabulous. It is. It's super interesting. And the interesting. thing is, is I think kind of that's going to be how the way heaven is, too. Right, of whether course. we want it to be or not, and that's of one course. of the things when I came, when I stepped into Siva, I kept seeing messaging and branding saying it's a group of like-minded people, and one of the very first things I said to the staff was, "Oh no, no, no! Anywhere where you see like-minded, you have to change it to like-hearted because we oh, are wow. definitely not like-minded. We all have a heart for Christ and a heart for art and a heart for art, 
but our opinions are all over the place. And hmm. and we saw that. So the 25 liturgical artists, pastors, priests, right, that came together, we it's the first time we had ever taken on this conversation, but Joe and I knew there were a lot of hurdles. We just couldn't quite put our finger specifically on them. What we came away with after three days is we entered in with a specific agenda, very, you know, symposium-like. We're having this conversation, this president, blah, blah. We didn't even get to the question number two. <laughs> Slide one <laughs> is an hour and a half long. Yeah, I, I got gotcha. It was three days long, right? Because what we realized in these 25 unique perspectives, um, we couldn't agree upon definitions of words. We could not agree upon what is the definition of worship, right? What is the definition of liturgy, right? And question number two was purpose. We didn't even get to that. Hmm. We were so stuck on what are these definitions of these words that we use today, right, that we can agree upon so that we can further the conversation. What we found was the words, when they were written or spoken, carried different meanings, some with baggage. Right? I was going to say baggage is baggage. the word that was coming to mind. Yeah. And so when they were written or spoken, they carried baggage to some individuals, where one would view it as positive, another one would view it as a negative, right? And then we got to those who said, okay, well, do we take the, the etymology of the word, right? The, the, and do we take the ancient meaning of the word? Or do we take it the meaning in which we use it in 21st century United States? Or do we take it, right? And that's sure, the United it's States. Like, you know, it sounds like a, sounds like a uh, you know, the process to select a Supreme Court justice, right? Are you a, a strict constructionist or are you an interpretarian? Yeah, right. absolutely. And so this was the conversation. And we realized after three days, wow, this is going to be a long process because just agreeing on definitions of words, right? Communion versus Eucharist. Liturgy, worship, praise—I mean, all these words that we use—but you know, they're they're different. They bring different, they bring different things along with them. Huge differences. Yeah, but I think of one of the one of the criticisms that you touched on that you get, and or or that you imagined you might get with a lot of your Marian uh, love and devotion um, is one of those, uh, you know, different understandings of things, right? Like when we, we as Catholics hear the word pray and we hear prayer partner, we hear, (laughs) I'm asking, we hear, let's come together and ask God for something and you're already closer to him than me. So I'll get a little (laughs) bit of a head start. But our, our, some other of our brothers and sisters may hear something more akin to how we envision worship or how we yeah. experience worship. Yeah. And, you know, some of the other words were venerate, right? We went round and round on venerate. Devotion, right? Intercessory, right? I tried to explain one time that Mary intercesses for us. Oh, my gosh. The looks that I got. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. You know, so things like that. However, this is one of the things that was so encouraging. When we moved off the verbal and written word and moved into 
visual and said, respond to this. They could all agree. Wow. Hmm. And so then as we left those three days, I thought, okay, so how do we have another three-day conference where nothing is, nothing, there's my Texas twang, nothing is spoken, nothing is written. It's only visual, right? How do we do that? And of course, my mind, my 50-something-year-old mind says, oh, no, we have to have a written program. We have to have a spoken presentation. We have to... And then, you know, the more I think about it, I think, wait a minute. I lived fully until I was seven years old without a spoken word, right? Yeah, you can do it again. We can do it it's again. Ama- it, it, it's amazing to me. I mean, I, I think about even in, you know, very, you know, drab uh, business transactional context, the power of an infographic Yes. A single image as opposed to 86 pages of written text or even a 30-slide presentation. One single image that you can unify around can create more toward you know comprehension, alignment, um, whatever it is your business objective is, than oftentimes other things can. I remember a company that I came across a while ago, I'm going to forget their name now, but blew me away. These people's entire business was visual note-taking. So they would literally Uh. sit in a conference, this kind of artist, and as the person was talking in this summit or conference or whatever, they would draw what the person was seeing. And there were some words. But then, you know, I watched this person do it for a half hour, and then I came back, like, the following day. And I looked at that image, and... Luan, I'm telling you, is like, yeah, that is what the person said. That is what I received. Let me say it that way. That's what I received from what the person said. But I got it, maybe not in an instant, but certainly in a much more compressed period of time than having sat through the, the, the conference itself. It's just, it's so powerful. And I think that's where we have to, we have to, we have to teach, right? We have to learn and we have to teach how to see, right? Christ said, ears to hear, eyes to see. And I was curious years ago about how many times in Scripture do we hear, do, do we read here, and how many times do we, do we read or see, see right? Hmm. The hmm. difference, I mean, just do a quick scan. You can do it. I mean, a program can scan it, like pull, right? The number of times that Scripture refer to us seeing the truth, or seeing something, right? Or seeing our neighbor, right? So there's that. But as many times as it says that, it's not going to do us any good unless we truly learn how to see. Absolutely. I think another attestation to that biblically would also be the fact that Christ wrote nothing right he i mean he 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 did buy images by signs by symbols i mean i guess besides writing in the dirt he did do that but we don't know what he wrote down um that one time in that parable he could have drawn a picture for sure for sure he could have drawn a picture maybe perhaps he was yeah cuz think about he, iconography they write of course, icons of course you know even in the old testament i'm thinking of in the book of daniel i think the 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 time when the hand appeared and you know where we get the expression the writing on the wall but but but, but with the exception of those few places to your point most all of the divine communication with us is done, you know, in this kind of very symbolic, image-rich way. And 
we've kind of jettisoned that in a way, right? And 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 what an opportunity to bring it back. One thing that it does remind me of, though, and I I do want to just close out our time with with this, but um, you talked about at one point, and it relates, but this idea of people who've experienced language in a negative way and how art can be part of a healing journey for them. Yeah. Right. So in a similar way, we think of all the things we've talked about are beautiful, but they're kind of um, somebody may say somebody more cynical than I, but somebody may say, Luan, but that's a nice to have. We don't need to have it. But in the case of of somebody who has been broken, who's wounded, who has gone through something, someone who's homeless, someone who's a, a victim of violence, the fact that these that these images can speak in a way that language cannot or in a way that language um, uh, or in a different way, because language, my experience with it is one of abuse. So we can't use that media to reach me because that's what broke me. Right. It, it's a, it was a fascinating um, thought when I read across. I don't know if you wrote it or said it, but um, but I, I just think it's another example of how that can apply. But from a more ministerial accompaniment standpoint um you yeah. know and that's not how we always perceive art we perceive art sometimes as like something you do for entertainment but right. there's so much more than that that's possible yes and i think that that's one of my i guess my, my passions in a sense to to broaden the definition of what art is right it's not just what you see in a museum it's not just right and art there is a an organization that is by um it's a, it's, a, it's a mission of First Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas, called the Stew Pot, and which I find is so interesting that they use art for healing. It's, it's not so much in their church, like in their worship space, their liturgical yeah. space, but they do get, uh, you know, maybe it's the Calvinist thing. I don't know. Um, They're pretty stripped a whole, down. Whole different conversation, right? <laughs> that is. But they, it's a different. I'll bring you back on for that podcast. We'll have that one too. <laughs> okay, um, but there is a mission that they have done beautifully with, right? Um, and definitely a blessed mission that the, it, it's called the Stew Pot, and it's the open art program in which they invite the homeless and the at risk into a studio space. And what they found was that um, a lot of the homeless, a lot of the at-risk individuals in our society um, have had have been traumatized by words, right? Um, if the, the movie that just came out, what, a year or so ago about Hillbilly Elegy, you see this, right? Um, individuals who are incredibly traumatized by language that is normal language around them. But it's traumatizing language. Hmm. It's it's horrible language. They don't know affirming positive language because they've never experienced it. And because hmm. of that, as they grow, they begin to have um, a, a retreat of language. They don't they don't have an opportunity to learn um, language in in the way that that God meant it for it to be used, right? And so they withdraw, and it. And again, it, when you're trying to minister to those individuals, language, words, spoken words, right, is is difficult. Um, and and you know, even with women that I know who have been 
physically abused, you know, by all the men in their life, from their father to their husband to the, you know, um, they begin to have a, a hurdle when God is referred to as our father, because mm. their mind, right, is only a father is a bad thing. And this, and this happens. This is another psychological conversation that fascinates me. But back to the stew pot. So what they did was they began um, an open art studio, homeless and at risk. Um, and what they found was as a healing tool, they taught those individuals how to communicate. Of course, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It, but they began to give them another language to communicate. Yeah, it hit me like a ton of bricks when I read that. Um, and of course, it's one of these things you recognize intellectually. Of course, images are different than words. But in, yeah. but it's something that when when I read what you said, it was, um, well, what a what an incredible opportunity. What and and oftentimes it's a, a fresh, lost one. It's a fresh start. It is. It's, it's a, a fresh brand language, new language, right? It's a fresh language. It's absolutely. Not, yeah, it's it's. Um, Art is a space that doesn't already have prepackaged bad baggage for them, right? Mm. And so it's fresh. It's something that they can learn. And of course, they work through it, right? They work through because their mind is in that verbal written language, right? So to go into another language and to, and to begin to grasp the, the possibilities of communicating. And in fact, in my own home, my favorite, some of my absolute favorite works of art are by homeless artists. Um, wow. There's one, um, two of them have since passed, but there's one that is just my incredible, if, you know, if my house was burning down, it'd be one of the ones I grabbed off the wall. And it's, and it's a, a painting of windmills. And it was yeah. a homeless man that I met and befriended. And we would meet in a park um, every evening when I got home from the office and um, he had never learned to read. And so he had picked up a couple of books from a thrift store or something for 25 cents. And it was Don Quixote. And so he and I, he, I know, isn't that great? <laughs> um, but You get a um, lot of money, you get your money's worth on a book that thick. Yeah, you know I mean? he picked up Don mm -hmm. Quixote and we read through it and everything. And um, when we finished it and everything, a few weeks later, he brought this, you know, probably a one foot by three foot. He found a piece of cardboard and painted Lovely. windmills on it. And to me, that is art, right? The yeah. love and the, love. the grace, the everything that that represents, right? And the intention that you mentioned yeah. earlier. I mean, it's just, mm. to me, that's the most precious piece of art I have. And it's not sentimental. See, that's the thing. A lot of times people will, will you know, poo-poo sentimental kish art. There is a place for sentimental and kish, right? But just because there is um, a, 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 a love or a grace or something that I would say, be careful about, about pushing it into the bucket as a disposable kish piece of art. There's a huge difference between something that's maudlin and sentimental and something that's about vulnerability and surrender. 
I mean, those are, you know, somebody who's, you know, it reminds me of a song that one of the songs that always makes me cry is a little drummer boy, especially in Spanish, by the way. But um, because in Spanish, mine the is verse King of, Wenceslaus. That's the one. Okay. That I, yeah. <laughs> we each have our own sentimental things. But in this case, the, the little the words um, are that the little drummer boy, he's got nothing else to give, but he gives what he has with such love and such openness and total um, surrender. Right. Uh, in in Spanish, entrega is the word about like you know I just give you everything that I I I, I spill myself out yeah basically right yeah. and that's what you see at least what I imagine in kind of the art that you said right somebody and who's... I would argue you know my argument would be that that little drummer boy right the music musically that little drummer boy has just as much a space and a purpose as what we would hear a messian, a requiem, right? By messian, right? That, and for me, God, you know, our incredible God can use anything. He can use the little drummer boy as much as he can use messian, right? Um, and He's I think, frugal. We, yeah, I think that we have to be careful when we begin to become gatekeepers of what art is and what art isn't. Mm. Well, there's definitely some uh, some connections and allusions there with the f- the faith, right? Gatekeepers to art, gatekeepers to the faith. Um, you know, the church actually in her language speaks very strongly against the idea of clericalism and even more strongly around the idea of simony, right? The idea of like selling um, access to God, which of course is a great sin. Well, but, but we do, do you... that in the art world too, right? And that's where I was we going. We do it exactly in the art world. And we have to be careful. Hmm. Luan, it's clear we could talk for a long time. But, but I'll see I you in November. You will. I, I, you're, you're a very busy lady, and I know that I have to get you on your way to your next thing. But um, just before we get to our uh, closing section, before we get to wait what, I want people to know, obviously, about SIVA, your upcoming conference, you personally. How do people follow Lawan, and how do they follow what's important to her? <laughs> well, Lawan, the individual, is quite private. You know, it's my attorney father saying, never write down anything and never have your... <laughs> my father would always tell me, there were two things he would tell me. Never get a tattoo. It identifies you in a lineup. Interesting. And the second one was never have your picture taken with people you don't know everything about. Because if you run for office, whatever they did, you've done if there's a photograph. Well, there's a man so, who was thinking ahead. Yeah. So for me, my father, I mean, I'm just pretty private, my personal self, unless you're a close friend, right? No um, worries. But uh, I do, I mean, Instagram, of course, Lawan Glasgow, that's where I tend to put my, just my, my small bits of visual that's going on in my life. Um, Siva.org, Siva is just C-I-V-A, Christians in Visual Arts.org. Um that is where you can find everything that's going on. And again, it's 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 for it's for everyone, right? It's it's for anyone who has that passion in visual arts, whether you're a maker, thinker, or translator, and whatever tradition you come from. Um, it's a place to just kind of bring yourself, bring your creativity, and join the conversation, right? Because we're not that's gatekeepers. Awesome. Yeah, we, we're yeah. As long as I'm sitting here, we won't be gatekeepers on any of that. Um, then. Yeah, the, the conference. Yeah, come up for the conference. We only have a handful of places left, but um, please, the November 
It's November 4th through 6th in Austin, Texas. I had to, of course, take it home to my home state. Um, Gives me a reason to go home and see friends. But it's on transcendence, right? Truth, beauty, goodness. Um, One of our keynotes is um, Father Stephen Fields um, from Georgetown University. He influenced me incredibly. His writing, he's a philosophy theology major, um, very much Balthazar and Rayner, and um, the concept of beauty, right? Broken beauty. And Mm. what is beauty, right? Not pretty, but what is beauty? And I think in the United States, we get confused a lot of times between what is pretty and what is beauty. Um, Very big difference. Um, And so he'll be speaking on the influence of... um, um, through the eyes of Balthazar on the beauty of the art of Georges Raoult and um, Matthias Grunwald, um, which will be awesome. fabulous. And so, we'll have all of this information, Luan, in the show notes so people can check it out. And I look forward to uh, being there and, uh, and checking things out in person. Oh, I'm glad you're there. All right, Luan, are you ready to play? Wait, Not what? really, but <laughs> I guess we're doing it anyway. <laughs> Perfect. If you're not ready, that's 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 a good sign. All right, here we go. I'm a planner, so I have to research ahead, and this I couldn't do. You're gonna do great. Okay. Now, Lawan, which of these is false about your adopted home of Tuscany? Number one, the story of Cinderella was created in 1883 by Carlo Collodi, an author, humorist, and journalist, heavily inspired by the Tuscan region where he was born. Number two. The Duchy of Tuscany was the first state in the entire world to abolish the death penalty in 1786. Or number three, opera was created (sighs) in Tuscany. Oh, these are so easy. So opera, which is false. Oh, Cinderella. Which is false. Cinderella. Collodi created Pinocchio. There you go. Oh my gosh. Anil Montevardi, the first opera, was created on the estate that was my very first home. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Monteverdi, oh. right? And the Duchy of Tuscany, absolutely. They were the very first to abolish slavery. Which that's correct. So November many people. 30th, and that's one of the reasons that's one of the reasons the abolitionists were flocking, right, to to Florence. And many of them are buried there in the cemeteries. Well, you're getting off to a cracking start, okay. Luan. We can only <laughs> go down easy. from here. Okay, sadly. let's keep going. <laughs> All right, here's the next one. Probably easy as well. Uh, And as a Texan and as the first ever Catholic executive director of SIVA, you'll appreciate this next question. Okay. So fill in the blank, Luan. Ready? In 1970, a Texan named Patricio Flores became the first U.S.-born Latino blank in American history. In 1970, a Texan named Patricio Flores became the first U.S.-born Latino blank in American history. Bishop. You are correct, Lawan. Yes! The, he was at St. Was, Mary's. That's right. It was yes! not until ninth it was not until nineteen seventy that the first US born Mexican American priest was consecrated as a bishop. Yes. He's a native of Texas. He was ordained actually in Galveston, Houston. And then he became the Bishop of El Paso and then returned to San Antonio and then he retired in two thousand four. Yes, he was so Bishop when go. I was at St. Mary's. And he's also um I think the one who um made Bishop Vasquez. Uh, oh, is that yeah. consecrated him as well? I think there's well? a connection there as well. Well, there you go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you, Texas you... is, people don't realize how Catholic Texas is. Of oh course it is. It's incredibly Catholic. Yeah. Yeah, I love Texas. I'll be there soon. All right. 
Last question, Luan, and if you've listened to the show, you know there's always a time machine question. So there is a time machine question. Here you go. You get a chance to travel back in time to Los Angeles in 1973, where George Lucas is putting pen to paper on the character that would become the most popular contemporary rendition of an archaeologist, Dr. Henry Jones Jr., otherwise known as Indiana Jones. Now, knowing what you know now about the success of that movie franchise throughout the world and your knowledge of archaeology and antiquity, what single one, Loan, recommendation do you make to Lucas about the character of Indiana Jones? It does not belong in a museum. It belongs in the culture which made it. Don't let it leave the country. <laughs> there you go. So right to, we gotta... Obviously, he did no antiquities law. It has to right. stay with the people that made it. Otherwise, just another variation of theft. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, right. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Congrats. That's a hundred percent score. You, um, you, you know, lived uh, up to your the expectations that we had for you, Lawan. So you didn't disappoint. Great job on playing. Wait, what? And and of course, you know, um, my prayer and blessing is for the prosperity of your work, your mission. Um, for more and more people to um, focus on art as this beautiful, uh, you know, opportunity to bring us together across ideological faith spectrums, etc., and to help people heal. Yes. Because I think that's particularly important today. So that's my prayer. Um, and I thank you so much for being on the show, Luana. It was a really great privilege to have you. This was fun. Well, I'm this glad you had fun. fun. And so many <laughs> other conversations. Of course. We'll have to bring you on for part two, three, and four. But, with Anthony. Um, but th- I want Anthony Santella to join me. Well, we have to do that live then because we can't do that. He'll over, be with he'll the... be with us in um, Texas. I may bring my microphone. We'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lawan. Well, God bless you. Thank you so much Thank for being you. on the show. And if you're listening to our voices, please make sure to subscribe. Share this show with someone you love. Share the show with someone maybe you don't love, but you'd, you'd like to. Uh, and help this show grow and prosper, and we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform, or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.